Hold on, before I go on, is this okay with you guys? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You just want to have a Sunday conversation. Yeah. Oh, okay, good. That in church, because I'm because I'm so deeply I'm so deeply faith based. I'll rise for the Reverend uh, Howard Chicken. The right Reverend Howard Chicken, <laughs> brethren, sisteren. Hear my preaching, see my seech and do. So um, if you say that, uh, aside from Walter Simonson, everyone has turned to self-parody, do you include yourself in there? No, I said, other than me, you fucker. <laughs> um, no, I, 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 um, I, mean, there, I mean, obviously you two guys know who I am. You, you, you may not. Um, the, You'll be so sorry. I'm, I'm a... Just, just as a preface to those who don't know me, I'm, I'm a cult figure in the context of comics. I'm the Randy Newman of comics. Um, and I mean that very seriously in the sense that Randy Newman, if you know who he is and you're a civilian, you're not a huge fan, you know three songs. You know Short People, you know I Love L.A., and if you have children, you have You Got a Friend in Me, you know, that way. But there's an entire body of work in Randy Newman's background which has nothing, no relationship whatsoever to those three songs. And that's very much me. In the, in the annals of comic books, most of the people who know me know my work know me from Star Wars. In 1975, when I was 24 years old, it is a toxic waste on my career. It is a complete waste of my time and energy. Had I, had I known that it was going to be a big a deal as it, as it turned out to be, I'd like to think I would have done a better job on it. I'm not sure I had the skill set to do so. And what's problematic about this is that the work wasn't good, but it confirms my worst feelings about the comic book business, which is that the companies convince you, the consumer, the enthusiast, that the character is the brand, whereas I know personally and realistically that the talent is the brand, and that who is doing it is more important to, than what is done. That is my feeling. It's, it's comparable. Look at, look at Phil. I mean, when I did a review some years back of a visual biography of Alex Toth, who I regard as the single best comic book artist who ever lived also a sociopath and an awful human being, one of the worst people I've ever known, potentially, I'm quite serious, potentially mentally ill. And I compared him to Phil Spector, who was also a pretty troubled uh. figure as well, but Spector was able to take teenage doggerel and treacle and junk and make art of it, which is really what comic books are in a nutshell. Um, for the most part, the writing in comic books, no matter, how, no matter the fact that the comic book writer today is the alpha, and there are reasons for that which have nothing to do with me. Um, comic books are a visual medium, and when we as enthusiasts react to the writing in a comic book, which we are actually, what we are actually reacting to is the execution of the writer's template by the artist, and that's for good or ill. And um, for the most part, generationally speaking, as comics have proceeded, we're into our 100th year now approximately, the capacity of narrative, the, the literacy of the talent has diminished radically. And the average comic book artist under the age of 40 frequently doesn't read for entertainment. And not reading for entertainment means that you're really not capable of outlining a coherent narrative. Without practice of, of other narrative, providing narrative becomes incoherent. No matter how many movies you see and how much, how much television you watch, how many video games you play, video games are to a great extent anti-narrative because they, are, they ask the participant to participate in the narrative. And I resent the idea of the democratization of narrative. Uh, I believe that it, my, my, the responsibility of the artist to me 
is to deliver narrative to me, not to ask me to participate in that narrative. Um, that makes me averse to most contemporary culture because most contemporary culture demands the democratization of narrative. So. When, when you said the artist in this context, you, you're meaning the performer, writer, artist? Well, writer, I, 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 I think really what's happened in comic books over the past, say, 10 or 20 years, take it back, I left comics full-time in the early 90s because I realized that I had no prospects. I'm, as I said, I'm a cult figure. And as a cult figure, I recognized in my mid-30s that I may get this old, and it's different here than it is in the States. At 35, I realized that I could potentially get to be 65, six, I'm 68 now, um, with no prospects and having to live on cat food and social security, which is for shit. So it was important to me to find a, a financial money stream to not be a strain on the system and to be able to be self-supporting. And that's why I moved to California, and that's why I ended up trying to get into the movie business and ended up in television. I worked on utterly unwatchable television, but, earned, but generated enough of an income and a pension and health care to not be a drag on the system. And I'm, I'm, very, I'm very blessed. I consider myself very lucky, and I lack entitlement. Uh, I don't take anything for granted. Um, I have a, a real aversion to people who believe that the world owes them a living. And um, comic books have never been a place for me to make a great deal of money because look at this room. I mean, I'm not filling the room. I mean, you know, I mean, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which is basically, you know, for retards, is, is, a, is drawing a huge packed house. Uh, with all due respect to the people involved, it's junk. It is meaningless, in, uh, irrelevant junk that whose value is defined by it's, it's not good because it's, it's not popular because it's good, it's good because it's popular. And its popularity is based on a kind of maintained adolescence, something you saw when you were 12, and you just continue to stay with it. And you continue to stay with it. And you continue to stay with it. It's kind of like being a man of 50, waking up one morning and having Nutella for breakfast. It's something you should outgrow at a certain point. And the comic book business in the United States is very much the same in that you now have 50-year-old men reading the same shit they read when they were 15 and still being entertained by it, but, but having making the requirement of the writer to slather a layer of gravitas on it to give it the edge of, it, of a fake adulthood. And we're, I'm dealing with an audience that is interested in adult material, but its definitions of adult material have nothing to do with what I regard as adult. I don't care about Batman's penis. Uh, I don't care about Batman's having an upended marriage. Um, these are characters created by 15-year-old boys for 15-year-old boys, with all due respect. And they are been perverted through an, 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 an arrested adolescence to maintain the interest of an audience that should have outgrown it years ago. And, and I'm in that weird ballpark where I am regarded as an embarrassment and a shaming by the mainstream, because the mainstream is, is frequently embarrassed by the work that I do. Um, because they're, they, they, comic book artists, comic book talent, comic book enthusiasts, in terms of their, their interest, they prefer action to violence with consequences. They prefer titillation and pinups to actually the concept of human desire. And they're embarrassed by, by, by characters who operate in a way that is not intrinsically altruistic. So they in turn could be criminals but, but have altruists as their avatars. And I recognize the fact that I don't share the audience's enthusiasms. I did as a boy 
I mean, I, I discovered comic books when I was four years old. How are you guys doing, by the way? Um, <laughs> um, we're coasting great. by. We're coasting by. <laughs> Please uh, tell you, us what you're reading. Dive in any time. I mean, I, I'm a man who likes <laughs> talking to a man who likes to talk. But I, you know. What's interesting to me, when you broke in professionally, when you professionally started doing comics, did you already hold those views of like, no. oh, this is like adolescent material, no. this is not no. what I want to oh, do? Oh, no. I, I, I loved it to the pieces. I mean, I, I, mean I, I have unconditional love for my wife and my grandchildren. And I had unconditional love for comic books when I discovered them. I was four years old when I, learned, when, I, when I discovered my first comic books. They were given to me by my cousin. And at that point, I intrinsically knew at four that someone made these things, and I wanted to be that someone who made these things as well. I had no talent. I had no particular skill set. But I had hunger and blind rage. And, and I, I'm quite serious. And that hunger and blind rage sustained me enormously for many, many years. When I became a working professional, my skill sets were not up to the work that was available to me. I wasn't good enough to do the work that I was given. And it was inept, and it was embarrassing, and it was shaming. And ultimately, that shame turned into a decade's worth of craft learning. And by the time that craft had taken over, I had become detached and removed from what the mainstream demanded of me. And what, what time period are we talking? Well, I started working in the early 70s. My first job yeah. was working as an assistant to a guy named Gil Kane. That's who, not a guy. That's your, you were an assistant to Gil Kane. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, see, there, there's the difference. I, I met Gil when I was 13 years sure. old. And I was, I was selling comic books that I'd stolen from a friend of mine at a used bookstore. <laughs> now you know. Yeah. Uh, I was a ganif. Um, and he, I was in awe of this man. He was one of my favorite artists. And I, worked, I went to work for him when I was 18. And I wasn't good enough to actually do any work for him. I was his gopher and I was his run-around run boy. But I learned everything I know today from working with him for that year's time, just watching him work and be, being in, the, in his presence. And to a profound extent, his sensibilities, his language informs me in the way I think, the difference being that I can write and he couldn't. No. Um, he was incapable of translating his own ideas and sensibilities into text. Uh, he wrote good essays. He could speak well, but he could not find a, a, verbal, a, a textual language to support his imagery, mostly because his imagery was so hyperbolic. As a kid, I loved that hyperbole. I really did. I, I, I embraced the balletic qualities of Gil Kane's work, but as an adult, I'm, I'm much more detached from the work. I don't care about fight scenes and, and choreographed drama and action. It doesn't interest me at all. Um, rather, I, I prefer set pieces to, to the kind of grandiosity of superhero comic books. There's a, the adolescent power fantasy element of, of superhero comic books bores me to tears. Uh, I feel the same way about science fiction. That science, some years back, the, the, the currently dead science fiction writer Tom Dish published an essay in, in New Republic, I think, um, which was subtexted, let us accept the fact that science fiction is a children's literature and simply move on. And I tend to agree. Um, I think that you know, speculative fiction is, for the most part, an adolescent fantasy. Um, and again, I, I like genre fiction as much as anything else, so I find myself trapped in this weird borderland between mainstream comics. My work looks like mainstream comics. It really does. It has, it has all the tropes of mainstream comics. It has organized pattern. It has a panel pages. It has balloons. It is, there's a, the structure of the page is very much a mainstream idea. 
Whereas the narrative and what I'm choosing to tell, the stories I'm choosing to tell have no resemblance whatsoever to what the mainstream likes. My heroes are amoral or at the, at the very least indifferent to morality. And I don't ascribe to the, to the kind of the hero with the wound model that is the defining element of superhero comic books. Superhero comic books boil down to two things. They are pastiche and they are also the roadrunner and coyote because they are based on a on a constant pursuit without closure. Yeah. And you've got an entire generation of grown men and women who are willing to judge other work by the standards of Roadrunner and Coyote. But and, isn't, I, and I reject that wholeheartedly. Isn't that part of um, superhero comics linked to their commercial nature? Where you know they never end because they're owned by a corporation yes. that oh, never I, I wants them true. to end. Yeah. I, think, I think that's quite true. But it also uh, goes right back to the, to the social model of the talent involved. The, the talent has a, well, if you look at the talent in comic books, when I came into the comic book business, it was a, the labor was divided in every way, writing, drawing, lettering, coloring, everything. And I took that very seriously and I, and I, I, drew, I realized I was an artist, so I shouldn't write. Until I realized that most of the guys who were writing for me, that I was working with as, as talent, were failed artists, and that didn't seem to be credential enough to me to, for me to take them seriously. And I became to, began to realize that I was better read than those people. I'm, I'm a product of a public school education in New York City. I'm also a nice Jewish boy. Not that Jewish, but, but Jewish enough. And in, and in the sense that, that, that I, I was forced by circumstance to take very seriously a public education. I'm very well read, within a narrow confine, and I, I've outgrown certain elements of things. So I began to write out of self-defense. Yeah. And I discovered that I had a voice. And as that voice evolved, I realized that I didn't share the sensibility of the endlessness of this, that, 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 that endless train of Superman versus Luther, Batman versus the Joker, that I had a finite idea that characters should change. One of the reasons why, in retrospect, I took such heat in 2017 for the divided states of hysteria was because assumptions were made about my work by people who didn't know it that there was a character, I did a book called The Divided States of Hysteria, which is about the aftermath of the next successful terrorist attack on the United States. The hero is the guy who misidentifies the target and goes after the people responsible. And one of the characters introduced in the first issue was a transgender woman who, is, who, who kills th her th three of her attackers in self-defense. And the, uh, the, the, more, the performatively moral parts of the audience identified this as me being transphobic, without realizing that unlike in other comic books where characters don't change, by the end of the book she was the moral focus of the book and the romantic focus of the hero. A hero who had, who had, had fallen in love, a cisgendered hero, who had fallen in love with a trans transgender woman. But they didn't stick around because the assumption is that the character is as the yeah. character will yeah. be. Do you think that's also an effect of how people who are only used to superhero comics or like big mainstream books don't have a patience to see narratives unfold? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, because, because the, 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 the comic book, the mainstream mass market comic book exists primarily to flatter the audience in its fatuous, in its fatuous credulity, You'll look with all due respect. It, it knows exactly who you are and what you, what you think, 
and it feeds you, it flatters you. In the same way that until recently, American television was a, was a, mark, was a medium that congratulated the audience for being too hip for television. And once they had you convinced you were too hip for television, they owned you by the ass. Comic books flatter the reader in every way, shape, and form. They, they tell you that, they, they convince you of the higher morality of power. When the truth, the truth is, morality has no power. And power has no morality. That Batman, which seems to be the most popular character out there in the world today, is about a, a rich guy who had a bad day when he was eight. And there isn't enough motivation in there from any adult's perspective to identify this as, as an actual operative concept. It's a child's idea of adult behavior. Whenever you watch, watch a little girl or a little boy playing dress up, what you're seeing is a comic book character's idea, a comic book reader's idea of how grown-ups behave. When I read Dark Knight back in 85, I realized this was a character who was posing through his striking attitudes and poses that were the sort of thing that a 15-year-old boy would identify as how a grown-up behaves. And that really scared the shit out of me because I'm, I was 35 at that point and I knew how, how adults actually functioned. And the, the, the infantilization of those ideas really bores the shit out of me. Um, I, but, but at the same time, as the underground comics movement has evolved from what it was in the 70, 60s and 70s and 80s to the, to the sort of salon-based Art Spiegelman bullshit that we have today, um, there's a complete rejection of anything even vaguely smacking of genre material. So I am identified by that cadre as a hopelessly mainstream talent. I spent a week in, in Buenos Aires two years ago, and the only other guy who was in, in my, my ballpark was an, 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 American, an English artist who opted not to come the day before the show started. So I spent the week being surrounded by these condescending cockbags who treated me as if I was a talking dog. It wasn't so much that I had anything to say, but the very fact that I could talk at all was really impressive. And I'm not comfortable being condescended to by people who's, who, who think I don't understand their language. These motherfuckers were discussing me in Spanish in my company. And I'm reasonably fluent in Spanish. <laughs> you know? I grew up in a Puerto Rican neighborhood, babe. You know? So fuck you, you know what I mean? So like, fuck you again. Yeah, I don't stand for this sort of shit. Um, but, but that's just me, yes. Yeah. I find it funny that you were talking earlier about how you sort of say that you moved away from genre fiction in your eyes, whereas I'd say you did adaptations of, a graphic novel adaptation of The Star is My Destination, mm -hmm. and I'd say a book like American Flag is very much a dystopian science well, oh, no, fiction. I, I mean, I, I yeah. embrace genre material. Yeah. But I don't, the only genre I don't embrace is superhero comics. I mean, look, I mean, Flag is, a, is, a, is an SF book. I mean, it's actually a Western science fiction novel. I mean, it's, it's, its primary influences are Terry and the Pirates and, um, and, and, um, and Maverick, a Western series of the 50s. Um, but, you know, I, I did SF because it was, a, it was a sop to an audience. Because most superhero comic books are science fiction based or at least science fantasy based. But I love Westerns. I love crime. I love erotica. I love historical material, and I like doing research. I love that sort of thing. And I, you know, when, when called upon to do superhero comic books, my editor is always, editor always I don't, I'm not using their powers enough. Oh, you know, shit coming out of your eyes, you know, that kind of, oh, you know, you know. It's, it's about 
you know, people interacting and acting behaviorally and telling the story visually and then language that, that conveys character. And I just have, I, I'm in awe of anyone who could find anything new to say about guys running around in masks and capes other than parody or flagellation. You know. Do you feel that, uh, so, so what about, uh, for instance, uh, Batman Dark Allegiance, your, your Elseworlds books, um, Batman Dark Allegiance and, and Thrill Killer, for instance? Well, Thrill Killer was, I'm, Dan, Dan approached me about doing yeah. this. The, the, very, the idea of doing such a book came from Dan. And, um, and I like Brereton stuff a lot. And it seemed like a lot of fun to do a, kind of a, a Warner Brothers hipster 1960s kind of thing. And, and writing for Dan was fun because he's, 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 you know, he's, he's not graphic, he's painterly, so it's a different effect. And, and the Batman Dark Allegiance and stuff, you know, you, you make a living. You know, I mean, I, and it was an opportunity to do a Batman who was not the child of wealth, but it was actually the child of two doctors who protected Sacco and Danzetti from a red squad. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a red diaper baby, you know, which is, I'm, I'm the child of popular front leftists. And, um, and I'm very proud of that. And I'm, I'm ashamed of my own side of the political left right now, the way it's become as Stalinist schmuckoid as it could possibly be. I find myself stuck between Nazis on one side and, and illiberal shitheads on the other. So I'm stuck. Um, but I had a great time doing that book. I mean, it was, because um, for me, doing Bruce Wayne as the job of the 1930s of an industrial designer, Raymond Lowy, Walt, you know, Walter Dowen Teague, Russell Wright. I mean, these, these are the guys who are just like McKnight Kaufer, uh, Norman Belgettis. Uh, these are just, these are names that ring in my life. Um, the men who designed the 20th century. Yeah. And I love that shit. He's doing... This guy has a question. Next to uh, the commerciality uh, of comic books that you say you discussed, do you also find it troubling that they can't actually move beyond their limits just because of the format that they have to write in? I'm not sure I understand the question. Well, uh, there are uh, somewhere uh, in every comic book, there are a certain number of set pages you can work with. Oh I, oh, I mean, you mean, you mean the, the literal format of the flimsy itself? Oh, I, I love the format. Because in manga, for example, uh, where one issue can be up to 300 pages. We, we are up. I, I, I love the format. And I'll tell you why. Because I believe that what makes my work strongest is the equivalent of a good tennis match or a good handball game. Because I like the idea of structure. When you, when you offer me the potential of doing 300 pages, or as many as 300 pages, or as, that as many of, you're already opening a, a field that, that doesn't give me a wall to bounce my ball off of. Okay? I love the idea. I mean, for example, I was troubled when I did Satellite Sam with Matt Fraction that the issues were different lengths. I like everything should be the same that order, order imposes order, and once order is imposed, you can be chaotic within the context of that order, okay? When I, when I did Midnight of the Soul, which was a, a book about a, a pastiche of, of film, film noir of the 1940s, when I first broke it down, I thought it would break down into eight 20-page issues. 
But every time I broke it down and I kept doing it again and again, it always came out to five. It just broke down that way. Okay? The same thing happened with, with the first arc of Hey Kids. Okay? Black Kiss was defined because I wanted to do six 20-page books, each one being a 10-page 10, 10 chapters. That, that, the, that the form, in this case, form defined function for me. And I'm, I'm a great believer in allowing structure to define the narrative. When I did, for example, when I did Hey Kids, when I, when I did Satellite Sam, my page layout was different from what he, what he suggested in his template. I told his story on each page, but I told it in a way that was somewhat different in many ways than what he asked me to do. And that, for example, right now, I'm working on this, the second arc of Hey Kids comics. And it's six 20-page books. That's how it breaks out. And that structure defines how I work. Giving me 300 pages or so creates problems for me immediately because it tells me that I don't have anything, any, anything to bang against. You know, I prefer the narrative structure of television to film. Okay? Film, in my childhood, as I grew older, was from, movies were from 60 minutes to 100 minutes long. The idea of going to an Avengers movie that's three hours plus, fuck that. Not happening in my <laughs> lifetime. No. Particularly when, for a movie that's going to tell me that I shouldn't have seen the first one because they're not really dead. <laughs> you know, they're not really dead. They were kidding. It was a joke. Oh, please. Not for me, you know. Television is, I mean, I like the idea that you've got 45 minutes to fill and that your narrative is defined by structure. I really like that. Um, so, no, I have no problem with it. it was, well, you got a question back there? You're a fucking virgin is what you are. Oh, they're recording this, okay. Um, as a your virgin voice got very deep your... when you got the microphone. That was really yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. How'd you like that? That dropped. Um, now, as a virgin of your work... Talk. How do I get a chance to get involved and define your product? Amazon. eBay. Your local comic okay, shop. So where would I start? Where would be the best place to start and which American Flag, Black Kiss, Times Square, The Shadow, Black Hawk... Um, and more contemporaneously, Satellite Sam, Midnight of the Soul, Black Kiss 2, Black Kiss, the Christmas in July special, Hey Kids Comics. So I'm looking at spending a good three, I don't $4, care how much you're spending, babe. <laughs> no, not really. Don't break my heart. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the first one would be... American Flag. American Flag. Yeah. Get the first 12, it's all that yeah. matters. <laughs> One through twelve. Yeah. Beyond that, you, you, uh, did you write more than twelve? Yeah, I, yeah. I wrote and drew twelve. Yeah. I wrote two issues for two other people. Then I wrote another twelve and drew, wrote and drew another twelve. Then I wrote four more. But and I, it, it, the lesson I learned from that was that I'm, I'm much more irreplaceable than I thought I was. Uh, I really did. I, I mean, I regard myself as a, as a journeyman talent. And I'm not that journeyman anymore. I thought I was. Um, I hate reading other people writing my characters. Yeah. Um, it, it embarrasses me that I created those characters. And I, I, don't do that. Stop that. Stop doing that. Stop writing that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was but interesting on uh, a recent podcast that you did with John Centris that you had 
I'd say, at least some admiration for what Kevin Feige is doing with the Marvel movies. I think, he's, I think Kevin is the only genius in comics. You heard me say it. Yeah. Um, he has managed to monetize to the tune of billions um, material based on ancillary, on primary material, which 99.99%, you heard me say this, 99.99% of the people spending all that money on Marvel tickets have no idea that there are still comic books. And those who do know, don't give a shit. Because the, there is no trickle-down effect to comic book sales, except in a comic book convention like this. I would guarantee that 25 to 40% of the people out there are people who have no interest whatsoever in comic books, but have come here to find a copy of a Deadpool comic book, or Guardians of the Galaxy comic book, to commemorate their experience of having seen the movie. So we've become a tourist attraction for popular culture. This guy was up first. I just wonder, you mentioned about structure and narrative. Do you find it easier to work on a limited edition where you know you have X amount of issues, or do you prefer to have a, a structure where you think it could go on forever, mentioning I flag? Prefer, I prefer the limitations of a, of, of a limited series. And, and I know that puts me in, in a ver, aversion to a, to a lot of comic book people. Years ago, when miniseries were a, a, a new thing, I was on a panel in New York, and one of the enthusiasts got up and said he hated miniseries, because he couldn't in, have any impact and influence through, through, through writing a letter, letter of comment on the ending. And I said, when did this become a democracy? And I was wrong. They were right, because it is a democracy now, because that's what video games are about. Video games are about the democratization of narrative. And I reject the democratization of narrative. Fuck you. You want to democratize? Write your own shit. You know, I'm doing my stuff. You know? Come with me. I guarantee a better time. Less self-indulgent. Uh, most of your work is, is relatively short. Uh, even though you seem like, a, for a want of a better term, a, a vertigo-like talent, where you, it's, it's a, a, a adult material, yeah. uh, a, a set narrative mm -hmm. uh, that has an ending in mind, right. maybe not fully set, but you remain uh, under, you know, uh, um, uh, American flag is, is less than 50, it's 24, maybe 30 issues. Uh, Satellite Sam was around 20, but 15. you didn't, yeah, yeah. But you didn't uh, actually write it. No, I, but it was, but Matt yeah, has referred to it. was a collaboration, it, right? As, as he has referred to it as Howard Chaykin fan fiction, which yeah. I find very funny, <laughs> you know. Um, I hate when people write for me or at me thinking they're writing me, and they're not. And like, let it alone, do your stuff and I'll corrupt it into mine, okay? You were talking earlier about how you appreciate structure. I do. Do you still like to experiment within the confine, within the structure itself? Because revisiting American Flag, I was sort of struck by how experimental sometimes the page layouts were. Because these days I find there's, especially in like mainstream comics, there's very little room for experimentation. And when once a nine, a nine panel page shows up, everybody loses their mind, but I'm reading American Flag and there's like nine panel grid within a larger page layout. Is that something you still enjoy doing oh, now? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there, I, I believe there are three basic storytelling approaches in the comic book business in the States. Um, the first is Will Eisner. Eisner invents comic books. I mean, Eisner absorbs what he knows from newspaper strips and, and then develops the comic, which I didn't know really until much later. When I was a Golden Age collector, I only collected DC comics because they were the ones that I knew of and Marvel stuff was terrible looking. 
I wasn't aware of the quality stuff and how good that work was, the work with Lou Fine and, 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 that, and, and Alex Kotsky and Jack Cole. You see that stuff then, it just, he, he's putting the language together. Everything that Jack did in the 40s and 50s is Eisner-based. And then Kurtzman comes along in the early 50s and steps away from, what Eisner is doing is melodrama and action. And Kurtzman comes along and introduces a kind of emotional detachment, almost a journalism. His work, his breakdowns on the war books have, have an emotional detachment that is really interesting to me because you're, you're stepping away from the heroic model and getting into an idea of, of just, again, detachment, almost a distaff idea of relationship of, 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 of protagonist and narrative. And then Kirby Lee is impact because by the time the engine of Marvel Comics gets really underway, uh, after the first couple of years, and Jack has to really become this turnaround workhorse, he ceases to do action. He becomes almost interested in impact almost exclusively. It's about hitting. And what's going on in comic books today, to a profound extent, is comic book writers who frequently have little or no visual sense are attempting to achieve Kirby Lee effect with Eisner technique. And the two things don't, are, are counterintuitive to a great extent. That, and, 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 and I apply all three of those techniques to the work that I do, but comic books are more conservative today because they are writer-driven. They're not driven by artists with, with, with narrative and visual sensibilities. My job as an artist in comics is to take a script and translate it from its literary, liter, literary effect to creating visual narrative. Frequently, I will look at a comic book and realize that the pictures themselves have no narrative value. They were just pictures. That, for example, some years back, I was on a panel with a couple of guys who had done a book, which sounded really interesting in the description. I bought the trade, and it was a five-issue compilation of the trade. And in these five issues, everything was brown. All the characters looked alike. None of them had anything, any sort of body language or relationship between acting and just you know, physical behavior, taking poses, striking hands, using their hands, their heads, just the way you tilt the head. But most significantly, in five issues, there wasn't a single moment where a character in the book subjectively identified the existence and presence of the reader. And the reader is an accomplice in the work that comic books are. The reader is, is the engine that turns the page. You have to, as a comic book artist and writer, engage the reader in a way that involves the reader in the action, how you place a, a surprise. You can't put a surprise on a, on a right-sided page. It has to be on the left. You're turning the page. Pagination is vital. And the, it's the antithesis of movies. When, in a movie, when, it, when there's a subjective, when, it, when, it, when a connection is made subjectively in a movie, you are taken out of the movie. You are removed from it. It becomes precious and clever. You know, that Deadpool stuff, okay? But in the context of a comic book, on every, if you look at my stuff, on almost every page, there is a headshot that reminds the reader that he's part of the narrative, that makes direct eye contact with the reader. And I believe that is an absolute imperative. And it was a lesson learned. And the flag stuff was me applying all the stuff that I had learned from graphics and from illustration to try to reinvent the way the comic book page looked. And what's fascinating to me, what's embittering to me, is that Flag reached a very small audience, but all of the members, all, all of the people who became major talents in comics within the next 10 or 15 years were part of that audience. 
I spend more time than you care to imagine embarrassingly explaining to un uneducated, un un unresearched interviewers, explaining to them, no, I did not borrow that particular technique or trope from this little motherfucker. That little motherfucker got it from me. If, you, if you'd actually read a book or paid attention, but we, we are, I, I can't speak for Belgium, I can't speak for Europe, but I can speak for the States. The States has created an ahistorical, incurious generation or two who have no, no, no understanding, interest, or, or awareness of anything that has happened before their own Cultural amnesia. amnesia. You've heard me say it. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and there's, and there's a, a, a smug rejection of what has come before it. And I'm, I'm, I'm a great believer in tracking down if I see something I really love, I know that it, it got its idea from somewhere. And I'm, I'm one of those guys who loves tracking it down to where it started. You know, I, I, I mean, there's an artist, there's a German artist named, named, named Ludwig Holheim, who spent the war as doing promotional posters for the SS. But it doesn't obviate the fact that his work in the 20s and 30s, travel posters and advertising, was fucking astonishing. It's fucking amazing. His influence on, on American artists like Ronald McLeod in the 40s and Nancy, Nancy Stahl today cannot be overestimated. And I, I can take the politics out of this stuff. You know, it's hard. It's hard, you know. Um, but the, the audience has a tendency to seek the equivalent of macaroni and cheese as opposed to spaghetti carbonara, you know, I, I'll go for the carbonara. I like a little challenge to my uh, to what I'm eating in there. How deliberate are you? Because you're talking about process now, and how conscious you are about the effect that you want to create. How deliberately do you communicate that to your collaborators? Because I was reading "Divided States of Hysteria," really struck by the lettering by Ken Brusenak. Me too. Okay. No, no, I'm, I'm quite serious. I, um, you raise a valid point. Um, in the script, I, hadn't, I mean, I, I said, in the script says, Ken, look, Ken and I are twin sons of different mothers. We've known each other since we were children. I'm a year older than he is. We've known each other since I was 21 and he was 20. I was Neil's boy and he was Taranko's. And what I, what I expected was a button. I said, I need to have the visual and graphic idea of what was then known as internet chatter, you know, before the dark web came along, you know. And what I got was so much more than I could have expected. Ken, Ken is, a, is a voluptuary in that sense. Um, and oddly enough, we're working on Times Squared right now, and he's, lettered, he's finished the lettering on the first 24 pages of 48. And both me, both I and my editor, our final notes were, we need more Brusenac. It's got to be pump it up a little bit, give us a little more, okay? Because the more in Divided States was fantastic. I mean, it was just this, there was a jittery busyness to it or a busy jitteriness to mm -hmm. it that really, in, that, 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 cr that created an atmosphere of, dis of, of discomfort. Well, that's very, so it wasn't like you gave him the instructions no, to create no, that effect. No, no, I was expect, I, what I got was so much more than I asked okay. for. Okay, that's very interesting. Oh no, because Ken, we, look, Ken is, one of my favorite people in the world. If you think I'm a pain in the ass, this guy, <laughs> he just pisses the people off like a motherfucker. It reached a point, if he hears this, sorry Ken, it's the truth. 
he pissed off people at DC Comics so much that they wouldn't even let me use him paying him out of my pocket. And, wait, it gets better. And after the people who he pissed off left DC, the stink remained. Okay? I had to struggle and wrestle the fuck out of them to get to use him on Rough and Ready. Okay? Because I thought he would be a really great talent to use on Rough and Ready with Matthew Reynolds' work. The same thing happened on the thing. I did a 10-pager a couple of months ago. Marvel decided to do one-shots of all the books they've ever published throughout their 80-year career. And I did a 10-page story for a book, War is Hell, about a, a Luftwaffe pilot jazz fan. And I wanted to let Ken to letter it because I knew Ken would bring his Kenness to it, you know. But it was like, oh, struggle. He's such a pain in the ass. He is a pain in the ass. <laughs> and, but, but he's the best in the business. You know, he, he's certainly the best for me. And, and what's interesting to me is that people have used him and have never really understand, understood how to get what I get out of him. I get out of him what you're, exactly what you're talking yeah. about, you know, pushing it over the top, you know. On Hey Kids, we had to rein him in because he was like all over the place. But the logos he did for the, comics, the fake comics covers, they're amazing, yeah. you know. I mean, it, I'm not even sure he noticed we did a book called Bruise in Action. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's clever. Well, it's kind of funny to me because it seems kind of contrary to what you say. You're such a, a fan of having structure in your book, but then you leave such creative freedom for somebody else to come in and add I don't, to it. Not a lot. It's one of the reasons why it's Ken. I don't trust anybody yeah. else like I trust him. Oh, and, okay. and, and I mean anybody. Yeah. Trust me. Uh, no one, no one do I, am I as open to as that. You know, okay. Bruzenak, it's like, go with God, my son. The God neither of us believe in, but go with God. You know, I mean, it's, no, I mean, I'm quite serious. Yeah. I've other letters I've worked with, and I've had a surrender and frustration. You know, it's, it's kind of like, it's like what Doug Kenny talked about at the Lampoon. When he started the Lampoon, uh, he had another guy art directing it, and the guy just didn't get what Kenny was looking for. And then Michael Gross comes along and gets it completely, because Gross realizes the key to making the Lampoon work is to hire the artists and talent who do the work they're parodying already. So you don't hire a guy who sort of draws like comics to do a comic book parody. The guy, you guy, hire the guy who does comic books to do the parody of the very comic books they're talking about. You know, and, that's, that was, and, and, and it sounds so simple, but no one ever thought of that before. And in, and in Brusenak's case, after we, when we started on Flag, his, his text lettering wasn't great yet. But his display lettering was so fucking good. And the display lettering is what carried the day. And at that point, I said, go with him. Do what you're doing. You know, he, knew, he knows what I want. And when he, when, when he goes off base, you know, pull it back. When we did Hey Kids, he brought in four logos, you know, and the, it, 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 it rang. He's probably going to do a different version of the logo for our second arc, just because it has a different feel. Um, but Ken is just, he's godlike. I love this guy. Okay, that's cool. And he is a raging pain in the ass. I mean, okay. oh, he's so fucking amazing. So, <laughs> speaking of um, Hey Kids Comics, uh, why did you... Um, well, it, this is um, your um, almost... Um, As, as, uh, um, oral history of um, early comics 
um, in, in three, or, or the start of comics, and then when it got really popular, and then um, the um, a, a time period where all of those early um, comic uh, creators are, are dying, and the result is um, slightly bleak, I would say. I think bitter is a bit. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm serious. Yeah. I mean, the I'm 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 a link between the two generations. Yeah. I knew a lot of those guys. You know, my my first job was with Gil Kane. I worked for Wallace Wood, for Gray Morrow, Neil Adams, Joe Orlando was my rabbi at DC Comics who helped me navigate DC. And I knew a lot of those guys: Jack Abel, Sid Shores, um, and and I listened because I felt. Anecdotally, there were great stories to be told. And the, the great unifying factor of all of the narrative was a bitter misrepresentation and misunderstanding of the value of one's own work. And I think almost to a man and a woman, that generation believed that comics was a stop before they got to what they were supposed to be doing. And they woke up one day, they were 70 years old, and this is what they had behind them. And they misidentified the value of the work they created. Not, I'm not speaking in terms of its quality, but in, in terms of its, its corporate value. Yeah. And I was talking to a friend of mine who's a professional in the comic book business um, when I was halfway through the book. And... I said that the difference between that generation and mine is that, like, and we never had that comics will break your heart, kid. That stuff didn't play. And he said, yeah, because you guys went in knowing exactly, because you were doing exactly what you wanted to do, and your eyes were wide open. Okay? And there's a certain reality to that. Um, the, I'll never forget, I was, I, was, I was new to the business. I was a year, year in. And I was at Marvel in the bullpen. And Mike Esposito worked in the, in the bullpen. Mike's dead, so you, I can talk about him. Um, and he, I've never heard the word fan used with such disgust and disdain and dismissal. And this was a guy who, in partnership with Ross Andrew, who I believe was one of the great unacknowledged giants of comics, um, in the 1950s, had gone off on his own to try to produce his own comics. They did at least visually, a very reputable knockoff of Mad called Get Lost. The writing wasn't very good, but the, te- but the visuals were. Very talented guys. Um, but obviously, his, the, the bile of, ra- of, ra- rec- of lack of recognition had eaten away at these people's cores. And Gil, you know, Gil never got over the six-page-a-day sensibility. The, the condescension that a guy like Will Eisner had for those guys. I mean, you may not be aware, but Will Eisner and, and Art Spiegelman conspired to deny Jack Kirby a place in the pantheon, the canon of American comics. And because Eisner regarded Jack, and quote, as a six-page-a-day hack. And, you know, so all that love you have for Will Eisner, think about it. Um, you know, I mean, I have a lot of respect for Will's work, but I disliked him personally enormously. He was a horrible human being. In my, in my, he hated me too. It was mutual. It was very mutual. We we both should have drowned each other when we had the opportunity. Um, and it wasn't until a, a a a novelist of some repute and a serious comics enthusiast wrote a the equivalent of Martin Luther's uh, principles and and embarrassed them into including Jack in this list. So. The, that generation was very troubled in its relationship to comics. 
and I really wanted to put that on paper. Most enthusiasts want to have the visual of comic books as just a bunch of comic book loving guys. You're just like us. You know, that, 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 that bullshit that Gail, Gail Simone put up after Stan died. You know, I've only met him three times, but he changed my life. Oh, please, get over yourself. He's one of us. No, he wasn't. No. He was a manipulative guy who knew an audience and how to play it. You know, come on. I mean, I believe that Jack Kirby invented Stan Lee, and that Stan Lee is the reason why there's still a comic book business. But the comic book business that is left behind by Stan is basically a bunch of fatuous superhero comics. And, and later on in life, Jack probably very much regretted creating uh, Oh, I Stan think that's Lee. quite yeah. true. Yeah. You know? But I also think if, this, if the polls had been reversed, yeah. I think Jack was perfectly capable of being just as, as exploitative and awful as Stan yeah. was. Well, I, I mean, I, th I think it was, more, it, was, it was situational and experiential. I don't, I don't, I don't feel that Stan was, was morally be beneath Jack. I think he just found himself in his seat and was able to behave in that way. And I think if, if, if Jack had been in that position, he would have fucked people over just as easily. Yeah, but because definitely at the start, um, Hey Kids reads a little bit um, of a, um, exposed secrets, but you... It's all anecdotal. Uh, yeah, some, yes. I mean, I mean most but, of it, a lot of it is true, mm -hmm. but some of it is also apocryphal. Yeah. Nobody ever hung anybody out a window, but everybody's heard the story. Yeah. It's always different talent. Is, is that why you changed the names? Of course. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, mean, I wanted to do a fiction. I, want, I mean, it's, it's, I didn't want to do, this is not biography. You know, the only characters in the book that are immediately identifiable by their avatars are Sid Mitchell and Bob Rose. You know, the others are, they are conflations. I yeah. mean, Alfred Kessler is a mix of, of a series of backstories. Uh, Ray Clark is a series of backstories, as is Benito, Benito Heindel and Ted Whitman. They're mixes of different, different people. Um, and I've crossed over stuff. I've changed some dates and details. You know, um, stuff that I, I have indicated taking place in the 50s, some place in the 40s. Um, but I really wanted to play with the idea that you know, our three protagonists are people who, in 1945, find themselves confronted by the business they thought that would, that would be, they'd be working in for a couple of years changing under their feet and then being their entire lives based on chasing those changes, maintaining themselves in those changes. And, and becoming, becoming mature, you know, first going from 20-year-old children to, to sophisticates to old, bitter people. Because yeah. I'm an old, bitter person. You know, and I, and I believe me. I, but, I gotta, but, but, uh, what? No, I mean, any, look, anybody who's not bitter when they get old wasn't paying attention. <laughs> But is, is that not something, and it seems uh, in Hicketts as well. Before, before you say, would you admit, and you'll agree, that you'll be able to make the people who didn't show up at this thing resentful and regretful of missing this? This is probably going to be the top point of this fucking convention. <laughs> Believe me. I mean, I know how it is. Yeah, it's, but, it really does work but out. But see, if, you were when, when, when you say something like this, doesn't that show that um, you're using this bitterness as something of a front? Uh, maybe not a front, but a, like an armor. That, you, you are not a bitter person. A bitter person is a horrible to be around. You are not horrible to well, be I'm, around. I'm a great deal of fun. Exactly. <laughs> no, but I, I don't think the one thing precludes the other. Right. No, I, I think, I mean, I still have blind rage. <laughs> but now I have a skill set to go with it. You know, it's, you know, it's true. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, like, like a funnel to direct it with. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, I mean, I'm, I am fun. I mean, let, we discussed this earlier well, on, you know. Uh, when, 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 when we met in, in Lille, I stood up in the middle of the convention floor and I said, and now we are here to have fun. 
and fun became the day, and that fun is good. Um, there are too many people in comic books who are self-mythologizing asswipes, who, who strike, strike poses comparable to that of the, of the French suicide poets, having never read the French suicide poets, but who are, are able to convince an audience of their seriousness by behaving in a, in, a, in a serious way. In other words, mistaking gravity for enormity. And I'm not that guy. I'm a very serious person, but I'm also a very funny person. I'm reasonably witty. I'm reasonably charming. There's a reason women kept marrying me. And um, they did. Um, a lot of wives. Oh, yeah, check my Wikipedia page. And, um, and they all hate me except the current one. And um, it's good. I'm not sure if she hate, doesn't she, hate yeah, you. She hates, she, she's working that way, you know. She, you know I'm, uh, she's patient. So I take very seriously the idea that I'm not going to go through life either being miserable or acting miserable, okay? So um, there's, a, there's a, a, a definite difference between being miserable and being bitter. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No question. You can still have fun being bitter. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, look, the fact is, half of the, the shitstorm that I find myself in every so often is based on, on the willful ignorance of, the, of, the, of many of the enthusiasts. And, and I, I recognize, I mean, my wife is, is, a, is a reality meter in my life to a great extent. And whenever I allow myself to get into, into kind of self, self-flagellating bitterness, she points out that, to quote me, quoting Super Chicken, you knew the job was dangerous when you took it. That I, am, I have exactly the career I deserve because I have exactly the career I chose for myself. I could very easily have done what everybody else did, which is to find myself a superhero and, and just infuse it with my own enthusiasm, the way Frank did with Batman, the way Walter did with Thor, the way John did with the X-Men. And I couldn't give a fuck about that stuff. That would bore me to tears, and, I, and, my, and my insincerity would bleed from it. I could not have done it, and I, as I say, I am in awe of anybody who could. Rather, I have built a career out here in the margins, you know, I mean, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a mar- I'm, a, I'm, I'm a talent in the margins, not marginally talented. Um, I know how good I am. I also know when I'm bad, I'm sucking. I mean, I'm, the work that I did in the 1970s, for the most part, is embarrassing, shaming shit. But the difference between me and many others is that I taught myself to grow, that, I'm not, that I did not start with a, with a franchise and have the audience attach itself to that franchise and decide that that's all there was to me. So those of you who followed my career over the, over the, the 48 fucking years of my career, going into 50, um, have recognized that, there, that, that there's a talent here who is willing to overestimate you and drag you along. Because it's, it's important to me to recognize there are any number of people out there who will flatter you endlessly, who will tell you that, that you can believe the narrative of, this, of these, these altruistic wounded heroes. But at a certain point, You've got to recognize it's, it's self-aggrandizing bullshit and move on to something else. Are That's you optimistic about the future Not in the of least. the industry? No, <laughs> no we, are, we, are, we are on life support right now. Um, I mean, comic books exist almost exclusively as an IP format. I mean, Image Comics is an IP company. It's, it exists so that writers can have fine artists who are willing to work for whatever they're getting paid in order to get a, a piece of the split when the, movie, when it, when the TV or movie, or movie sells. And, um, you know, and I, you know, I'm, I'm as guilty of that as anybody, but I, but I don't, look, I don't produce material that, that gets noticed by the average producer, because the average producer is looking for something that's going to remind them of the X-Men. And, and I, I, just the very idea of doing that makes my shoulder blades kind of cringe. It's like, 
ugh, kill me now, you know? I mean, I'm, I'm doing, I do weird shit. I do, I do stuff that, that I enjoy. And I hope there's a part of an audience that'll, that'll, that'll join me, but it's rare. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I, if I depended on the audience's attention and favor for my, for my ego, I'd kill myself. You know? uh, but, and I'm not suicidal uh, by any means. And do you not sometimes also like for the audience to, 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 to feel that um, bit of cringe from what you're doing? No, not at all. No. I want to be loved. <laughs> but no, I, but I'm not willing to work on it. Yeah. What do you got? You're talking earlier about the the, um, the giants of the industry that influenced you, Toth, Kurtzman, Eisner, uh, and, and so forth. And you compare, and Kirby particularly, because I know a little Talk bit more Talk louder, because I'm Sorry, you. okay, so you, you, you're talking about Toth, Kurtzman, Kirby, um, and people that, that the gen guys. genuinely the guys. are the, right. the giants of the industry. The guys who made it up. Yeah, and you compare, comparing those, um, the wealth of experiences that those people had compared to the, the almost homogenous anodyne um, experience of the last you know, 20, 30 years in, in the US as an observer, as, not as a participant. Right. Do you think that there's a difference, a, 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 an evidential dis, dis, uh, difference, excuse me, between the, the folks that actually lived their lives, that went to war, that, that lived through poverty, that had all of these uh, uh, um, experiences, compared to folks that in the 70s and 80s decided that they wanted to become a comic book artist or a comic book writer Maybe. and then, then, then went and pursued that? Well, I mean, right now we're going through a period in, in, in popular culture where boomers are being blamed for everything. You know, I was, I was born in 1950, and... And one of the things that all generations do is shit on the previous one. You know, it's it's its job, you know. And um, maybe I, I was at when I, when I when I introduced Hey Kids at the Image Expo in 2016, uh, I found myself in the green room with a a writer who I'd never worked never met but I had worked with, who I won't name, um, who is who who presents as a soccer dad but has a much more complex, darker presence in his reality, and he was clearly in a blind rage. And I asked him what was going on. And he said, well, I've spent my entire life being fucked by your generation. And his generation was half the size of mine. And now the millennials were coming along, they were the size of mine, and he was going to be fucked by them. And I said, it'll be okay, because you can take the pleasure in watching my guys drop dead every day and, <laughs> and watching the expectations of the, of the next generation being shattered on the shores of reality. And he took some, some comfort and solace in this. And about a year later, I called him up and I said, I was wrong because you're fucked. Because, because, um, because the, that, that generation of, of, of 80 million following his, by dint of majority alone, are going to fuck so much shit up, as much as mine did, that the world will be unrecognizable in 40 years. Um, so that, when you talk about, it, about the experiential idea, um, I'm, like I said, I was born in 50, and it wasn't until I hit my 30s that I understood what the experience my parents had actually had in terms of the Depression, Second World War, and then the shutdown nature of the 50s. Now, my parents had a different experience because they were Reds, and they didn't really adopt the, the I mean, I never lived in a house until I moved to California. I lived in apartments. I grew up on welfare. Um, my parents violently split up when I was nine. 
So I was raised by a single mother who did a dreadful job. Um, my brothers are both completely detached from me, and I have no idea. I mean, I'm, I'm, I survived my childhood as opposed to absorbed it. So I don't know. Um, I do know that, that a lack of curiosity about what brought, got you to where you at, wherever you are can be deeply damaging to an adult life. And um, it's, I mean, I'm, I reject ignorance that if, some, if I don't know anything, I'm comfortable with saying I don't know because it's, it's good to not be an idiot and think that you're gaining something by pretending it, it knowledge when there is none. And, um, but, that, but that's also the result of having had a secular but Talmudic education. I was, I was buffeted really hard by a bunch of old Jews when I was a kid. Um, I, I would be planted outside of the synagogue where my grandparents were, and I would get into arguments with old men who taught me how to argue. And being argumentative, simply for the sake of being argumentative, is a waste of time and energy. But defending a position, having a position to defend, is extremely valid for me. That's something I got from Gill. Um, and I, you know, I think that, as I've said more than once recently, I've only recently come to terms with the idea that the Comics Code Authority, besides infantilizing comic books, also infantilized the audience. It drove away people who might have sort of continued to follow comics as a medium as opposed to a genre, but it's become a genre. You know, I mean, the very fact that Riverdale is a surprise hit on television, but the Riverdale that's a surprise hit on television has no resemblance whatsoever to what Archie comics have been since their reception in the mid-40s. Mm -hmm. Rather, they, they, re they reflect a, a darker model. And they're, doing, they're, they're running with it great guns, okay? Um, but comics have become a genre again. They are, the, the genre is dark, murky, edgy superhero stories. You know, I mean, I'm, I've not seen Captain Marvel. I will probably not see Captain Marvel because I don't care about it at all. Nothing about it interests me in the least. Whereas I'm going to see Shazam. Why am I going to see Shazam, you ask? Well, not because of what it is, but because of the lead. I love Zachary Levi. You know, I love this guy. Because I'm a musical comedy guy, and he was great and She Loves Me. She loves me, but she doesn't know it. Show it. You know, I know. And I'm, say again? I hated Chuck. Chuck was bullshit. <laughs> the, only thing, the only thing good about Chuck was he realized how big Adam Baldwin was because Zachary Levi is a big guy. <laughs> and fucking Adam Baldwin is taller than Zachary Levi. You know, you know, there you go. I like Adam Baldwin a lot, you know. What? He, yeah? What do you got? Yeah, you see, you're work, not... Why would this work for you? I mean, yeah, it's going well. <laughs> but if you're not optimistic about the future of the industry, what are your hopes going forward for the industry? I have none. Oh, okay. I mean, I, it can I, all I mean, burn. It yeah, can I all burn. I, I mean, I, look, I mean, I, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in heaven or hell. I believe when I go, I'm done. You know, I believe we are in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a... I think we're doomed. Um, I can't speak for Europe, but I think that there is no reason for optimism in the United States whatsoever. Uh, I published a piece on Medium last week about the fact that, called Whistling in the Dark as We Circle the Drain, the... The problem in the States right now is that what, what the current administration has revealed to us is the existence of an entirely different substrata of American idea, which has nothing to do with mine, and that even if we get a president who is not tertiarily syphilitic, um, we're still going to be stuck with the knowledge of those 45% of Americans who are okay with this. And that's, that's the damage and drama. There's no way we can come back from this. 
Um, and in, in terms of, of the comic book business, at 68, you know, I, I start every new year with the assumption that it's my last year working. Because just it's a realistic attitude. Um, I'm, I've aged out at Marvel and DC. I can't get work from either company. I know how, that, that may surprise some of you, but it's true. Uh, I can't get a job at DC or Marvel. Um, so I'm working at Image, and, and as long as Image is kind enough to continue employing me, I'll continue working there. So would you say to people who are hoping to get into the industry professionally, just don't? Or what no, advice would you, would you give I, them I, to I, 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 I Look, I never give it. Unsolicited advice is irrelevant and pointless. I, whenever anybody, I, I always, do you care what I think? And comic books, the model of comic books changed in the 1990s when there was all of a sudden this, this huge bubble of money based on nothing. You know, it was, a, it was, it was the equivalent of the, of the, the, the tulip frenzy yeah. in Holland. And people made millions from work that, that ended up being mulched, you know, through, through these, these enormous pre-orders. Retailers were driven out of business. And, you know, it, these days, comics have become such a democratic medium that you you know you publish yourself in you know, web comics and all this stuff. When I look at the nib on 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 the web, it's just these very amateurish looking pieces of stuff. But the writers run everything. I mean, Z Griffey did a, did a did a, a zippy a zippy daily a couple of days ago about comic book ca cartoons drawn by people who can't draw. You know, Dilbert. You know, and this sort of thing. So, I have no idea. You know, I, I have no clue. Uh, I have no real understanding of what people want to do. I mean, I believe that comics is a calling comparable to the Jesuit priesthood. Um, I think it's, it's something that, 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 it, that grabs you when you first see it and you are stunned into a relationship with the material that can never be broken. Now, I don't read comic books anymore, but I derive the same pleasure from making them as I once did from reading them. Because for me, comic books is the, is the solution to problems. It's taking literary ideas and translating them into a visual narrative. And that, that's my motivation every day. I get up in the morning, I live in a surf town, I get up in the dark, I go, I, I, I go to the gym, I meditate, I have breakfast with colleagues, I'm at my desk by nine o'clock, and I don't have to warm up, I know my day, and I sit down and do it. And my, my work is very procedural, you know, and, um, and I love the rhythm of my life. And the rhythm of my life wraps around that idea. And I don't work in terms of time. My day is not a time-based idea. It's a mission-based idea. I know when I sit down what it must be accomplished that day. If it's finished at 3, I'm done. If it's finished at 7, I'm done. But I don't get up from my desk until that mission has been completed. And a lot of that is, is an imposed discipline because I am by nature a lazy-ass chaotic slob. You know, in a perfect world... <laughs> thank you, Willie. I would be... I'd make my living testing... Testing artisanal macaroni and cheese. Mm -hmm. um, so I have to really create, that goes back to the question about structure. I have to create a structure for myself to work against. Yeah. And I really, I, I take that very seriously. You know, I mean, I'm not a naturally, I mean, I'm the least naturally talented member of my generation. I flatter myself, but it's a reasonable flattery in that I learned how to do this. And that's what I, one of the things I share with Gil Kane, because Gil's early work just sucked dick. It was dreadful. <laughs> and he got good by learning to be good. Mm -hmm by learning to compete. And I, I did the same thing. I recognized, I, I, had a, I did a seminar with Bill Sienkiewicz about a month ago at CalArts. And I turned to Bill and I said, you know, I will never, ever be able to draw as well as you do. 
but thankfully you'll never be able to write as well as I do. And that's, and that's, the, that, that's where it comes together. The synergy of writing and, writing and drawing, that's what it's at for me. What do you got? Well, you said the future is looking very bleak, yes, but... Well, uh, I mean, yeah. I, I won't care because I'll be dead. Yeah. yeah, but with Image Comics at the moment, I see a lot of work that is all, which is a bit commercial, yes, but also has these new narrative uh, experiments as well as visual prowess, like, for example, the new Gideon Falls. Uh, which uh, at some splash pages reminds me of a bit of the shock that people had with uh, Doctor Strange comics in the 70s, who were probably very, very, very high on LSD. I, I, maybe, I don't know. See, you're, you're asking, but the problem is I don't care. Um, all I care about is myself. And I'm, I'm sorry, I mean, I used to be good-looking enough to be narcissistic, now I'm a solipsist. And um, it, it's moved on. And the comic book narrative is a plastic yet static idea. And finding new ways to tell stories, either within the context of comics or outside of that context, is what matters to me. And what you say may be true. But it doesn't matter to me. Um, I, I live, I live in, a very, in a very proscribed universe. And I'm always interested in people showing me new work. But it's rare that I see, I mean, the guys, I mean, in terms of contemporary talent, the guys I look at are Lionel Yu, I love Lionel Yu stuff, Eduardo Riso, Scotty Young stuff, Scotty's great, just does great work, um, Chris Samney, Mike Choi. You know, these guys are doing some amazing shit, you know, and some of it is retro as a kind of a retro feel to it, but it's not condescending or, or coy. It's sly. And I really like that. Um, there, are, there are guys I'd like to work with, but I'm not I'd, I'd rather write for myself, you know, and, you know, and, and, and again, I'm my, my fear is I don't want to sound like the guy like the old man yelling at the kids to get off his lawn. I'm not a curmudgeon, because curmudgeon is as insulting and ageist as anything is that may be sexist or racist. I'm a contrarian, and then in my contrarian nature, my job is to disagree when disagreement is called for, and to embrace when it's not. Gil Kane was frequently dismissed as a, as a, as a, as a, an overbose loudmouth, but the truth of the matter is he was as self-critical as he was critical of anything else. And the problem, criticism in comics, has become Stalinist. It hasn't, because for the most part, most criticism in comics is literary as opposed to visual. Um, there's no editorial, at, at either Marvel or DC, there's no one working editorially who has ever actually drawn a book. Um, all of their criticism is filtered through the eyes of the writer. I started by saying that the writer has become the alpha in the business, and the reasons for that are three. One, the 90s. Uh, the 90s introduced a level of sensation to comics that had nothing to do with narrative. Two, and this is with all due respect, I'm sorry, but many of you are, re are, are adults reading children's material. You're reading young adult fiction. Grown men and women should not be reading Harry Potter novels or Mockingjay. It's written for smart kids, not for stupid adults. Again. And three, 
as comic books have become IP, the, it is in the best interests of the representation and management classes, producers, lawyers, agents, to identify the writer as the creative, creative force in the material and the artist as a, an unfortunately necessary tool and adjunct to the writer's creative experience, which, by the way, is utter, utter bullshit, okay? It's a 50-50 split. But writers have come to embrace this idea, and many of them having absolutely no clue of how to tell a story visually, but they really like comics. So what so. gets you to work with, like, let's say, Satellite Sam, working Never with gonna, Matt Not going to happen again. No? No, I mean, that, was, that came out of a, a shared experience. We both read the same book, and Matt had always, and I, we, we'd worked together before. We wanted to do it. Um, and I'm grateful having done it, but I, I, I don't want to do it again. Um, no. I don't see myself ever working with another writer again. Okay. Uh, what about the period in time when you co-wrote with uh, David Tishman? It was an unpleasant experience. <laughs> um, no, David, David and I, that was basically as I was working in television. I was, doing, yeah. I was doing 80 hours a week, but I wanted to maintain my presence in comics still. And David, David had ideas, but he couldn't close. He, wasn't, he couldn't execute. And that, that's that, I mean, his, I thought Greatest Hits was a phenomenal idea, but he couldn't fucking execute. And there was no closure there, um, but a wonderful concept. And a David was a phenomenal idea man, but he needed me to come in and, and, and create, a, create material that, could be, that, could, that, the, that the writer could use, the artist could use. Um, my scripts, I don't deliver pencil. I haven't delivered pencil in 35 years. Um, when, it, when I'm hired to do a job, because I consider myself a brand, they know what they're getting. And so I deliver full scripts even when I'm drawing it. Okay, so my scripts are extremely detailed. And one of the elements of my scripts that sets it apart from others is I describe very specifically the size and shape of the panel. Because I believe that is, that is the writer's responsibility to the artist. Because in the context of comics, space represents time. And it is the, it, it, it's, it's not, when, 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 I, when I did work with an art, with a writer, and they asked me what I wanted to draw, I shut down immediately because that's not my job. My job is not to draw in self-indulgently. My, my job is to be a graphic designer in the service of narrative. Some years ago, I found myself in the uncomfortable position of having to take on a job that I didn't want to take on, but I was in no position to say no. I had to do the job. The editor, it was, it was a, a long involved story, but I ended up having to take on this job. And three days later, I got a call from the writer who asked me, don't do those things you always do. I said, what do you mean? <laughs> and, and, and I realized what he was talking about. I wanted to hear him tell me. And I said to him, finally, you know, fuck you. I do your job better than you do your job. Let me do mine, and you'll be fucking happy. I found his arrogance shocking. Mm. You know? Um, the condescension, and of course that condescension is enhanced by many of the writers behaving like adolescent assholes and hobbyists and thinking they're putting one over on the man. And when I, sp I spent five years doing a seminar at Marvel twice a year, and that first day of that seminar always consisted of telling these guys, you're a fucking cog now. You're taking the king's shilling. You have taken the dollar. Once you take that dollar, you are no longer putting one over on the man, you are the man and that it is time to put away your childish pursuits of hobbyism. You're not drawing comics on your mother's cutting, you know, kitchen table on, on the breadboard while everybody else is asleep at night. You're now making a living doing this, and you have a responsibility to the corporation you're working with. If you don't want to have that responsibility, do indie stuff. Do what you want to do. 
But if you're working at Marvel in DC, you're a corporate cog. Your job is to support and maintain the train that these people have invented. And these people were just horrified. They were just like, how dare you talk? Well, fuck you. You know, again, do it somewhere else. And they were amazed that I would actually say this. But that's just the way it is. That's the reality of the circumstance in which you, which you work and live. The, the maintenance of a perpetual adolescence is a self-inflicted crime. And I'm ashamed to know too many people in the comic book business who still think of themselves as aging boys. Grow up. What do you got? Isn't part of the, the, the actual joy in art, whether it's a movie or a comic book or, or a painting or, or whatever, isn't the, the, that, that moment of, of amazement and uh, um, just bewilderment that, that then gives you, know, gives you that, that, that wonderful yeah, no. joy, isn't no. that part, part of a child, ch no, childlike I, no, understanding? I, 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 I think that, that's, a, that's, that's both an adolescent's view of, of, the, of, of the experience okay. and it's also a a fraudulent imposition of the experience by people who know better. If, if, if it's on its own, yes. But as part of a, a, an adult experience where you're able to appreciate not only the mechanics but also the, the, the work as well as the, the narrative and I, the... I, I, I think that, that's something corporations want you to believe. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I think that's... Uh, look, he's an art... No, no. <laughs> I, I, I think it's, it's the... You know, I, I took years ago, I took the... Um, the, the writing course by, what's his name, McKinnon, the, 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 what, McKinnon Robert McKinnon? Uh, McKinnon, yeah. Whatever, I forget his name. His, his, he did the course, and, you know, it was valid. And he talked about, the first thing, he talked about the writer's fallacy. And the writer's fallacy was that the audience didn't get what I was trying to do. And, and that's just bullshit, you know. And too, too often, the, experience of, the creative experience is romanticized for the audience. And it's not a romantic experience. It's sweat labor. Um, it really is. I mean, and, and again, there, there, there are aha moments. But for the most part, it's, it's trudging the road of happy destiny. It is not motoring the road of happy destiny. But we, we don't, ex as the audience, we don't experience that sweat that, that you have to right, go to right. to present us with this finished product. Look, All we know, get is that instant moment where we For you, it's every Wednesday the at the comic book store. For me, it's every fucking morning on my desk. <laughs> You know, and, 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 and there is pleasure. I mean, there is true pleasure. But, but there is also, you know, I mean, you know, I'm 48 years in, and my, my job is to do work that doesn't embarrass me. Sure. That's, that's really, it's as simple as that. Is yeah. there one part of the process that you can point to? Because you say, like, comics is like a, the Jesuit Brotherhood should be a calling. Is it like the collective experience for you that you just oh absolutely love? It's, it's or is there one? I, I, I love the the I love the entirety of it. You know, every day I get up I and mean, one, at one point every day, I listen to Count Basie, I listen to Duke Ellington. No, seriously, and I look at Alex Toth and Harvey Kurtzman to remind myself that there is elegance and beauty in work of the long dead, and that my job is to maintain that train, to continue the train moving forward. I gotta get back to my yeah, table. Sure. We've gone over. Yeah. But was that fun? Uh, we enjoy ourselves. <laughs> now, now your job. You're, I'm quite serious about this. Your job is to tell those fools who miss this shit 
that they have, they, their lives have not been transformed and they have wasted their time missing this. <laughs> and I'll appreciate you deeply if you all do that. Thanks, Alan. It's my pleasure, Howard. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for being here. Uh, there's a, um, uh, a print that you can collect, and I'm sure that Howard will sign it back I'll at his table. table. In the front, next, next to all the mutant turtle bullshit. And, um, <laughs> fight your way through that crowd. Yeah. Thanks, Howard. See you soon. Thank you.